This audio presentation is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Good morning, East Coast, and good morning, West Coast. I'm Jeff Heide, Director of Media Relations at RAND, and I'd like to welcome you to this Policy Circle conference call to discuss President elect Trump's policy toward Russia and relations with the intelligence community. These calls are one of the many benefits of being a Policy Circle member, and we thank you for your support. So I've got two terrific experts here with me in Washington today, both with long histories with Russia and the intelligence community. Bill Courtney is a senior fellow at RAND. Uh, During a long foreign service career, Bill served as ambassador to Georgia and Kazakhstan and and as special assistant to the president for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia. And that's just to name a few assignments. John Parakini, good morning, John, is director of the Intelligence Policy Center at RAND which manages RAND's research and analysis for the intelligence community. His own research has focused on terrorism and weapons proliferation, and John previously held posts at the Monterey Institute of International Studies, the Henry L. Stimson Center, and at the State Department. Gentlemen, it feels like these are particularly fraught times. Uh, Many norms of our political structure seem to be in, in some unusual state. We're not sure whether Russia is friend or foe. Same for the U.S. intelligence community. We can't seem to agree on what constitutes a fact. It feels like a kind of crisis mode. Uh, How does it feel to you? Where where are we on the spectrum historically? Well, it's ironic that one would even think of the intelligence community as being a foe of uh, the uh, nation's president, uh, that it's in the same sort of sentence with uh, Russia. I think that will change over time. We're in an unusual period. It's, it's uh, unprecedented in many respects. But I think over time, the relationship between the White House, the president-elect, and the intelligence community will resemble what is uh, commonly have been experienced throughout the 21st and 20th century. That's that's John. Uh, Bill, what do you think? Uh, well, in the, the Russia context, uh, things have changed a lot in Russia in the last several years. In 2010, NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, adopted a strategic concept which spoke of achieving a partnership with Russia. <clears throat> but the next year, 2011-2012, there were large demonstrations against Vladimir Putin in Moscow, that seemed to spook the, the Kremlin and accelerate both uh, a domestic clampdown on civil society and a more assertive or, in some cases, aggressive uh, foreign policy. Uh, so now uh, it's fairly clear that Russia is an adversary. It's not a partner. But it would be incorrect to try to resume a policy of containment for the Cold War because there are important areas where we continue to cooperate with Russia such as in space launch, U.S. astronauts go to the space station on Russian rockets, uh, proliferation issues, uh, there are certain counterterrorism issues in which cooperation may be possible, there's a lot of science cooperation. So probably it's better to say instead of containment, we would cooperate, but we will also confront and deter where necessary. I think Bill's got that right. I mean, there was a fundamental change from 2010, and then from 2014, there was another change when Russia actually went into Crimea. That really did signal a significant change. And if we look back, you know, five or six years, the relationship between the United States and Russia was really quite different. It was really much more constructive. So 
in a short period of time, there's been a dramatic change. In the intelligence area, even in the period of good relations between the United States and Russia, uh, the respective intelligence services continued to be wary of one another. The Russians have a long history. They have a very good uh, intelligence service. Even with friends and allies, intelligence services are always wary about the future. Mm -hmm. And in this respect, in regards to the Russian service, which is a very good one, very effective, they didn't stop spying on the United States, nor did we stop spying on them. There are some very serious pseudo-intelligence uh, community rumors going around at this point. How should we be looking at these rumors? Well, Jeff, I, I assume you're referring to the, the uh, dossier that BuzzFeed uh, released. And yep. I, th I think an important thing to put in context about that is the um, director of national intelligence shared that with President-elect Trump as a way of saying, sir, you should know that this is out there, not mm -hmm. as a way of saying the intelligence community is providing this as its assessment. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, that's an important role for the intelligence community, particularly for a president-elect who's coming in who will not necessarily have gotten the full sweep of intelligence insights that are out there, is to be warned or alerted. Now, whether these uh, allegations uh, are true or not heretofore, they've not been able to be verified. But uh, it would not surprise me that the Russians have been looking for a way to gain advantage against the United States whether it be uh, former Secretary Clinton or um, President-elect Trump. They're going to pursue their competitors, senior leaders, in a way that's aggressive, as, as would we, in order to understand who they are and have an ability to influence them in the future or know where their strengths and weaknesses are, their, their uh, desires or their fears. Uh, so it doesn't surprise me that that might have happened. Whether some of the allegations that are made in this dossier are indeed true, I think that's a whole separate question. But that the Russians would pursue gaining an understanding and indeed gaining advantage, indeed blackmail, uh, seems to me perfectly in keeping with Russian practice uh, over the decades. When I served in Moscow during the Cold War, we often would say in our apartments, when it was time to go to bed, we would talk to the wall and say good night. So the allegations <laughs> that, that this is the Bill. Russians... This is Bill speaking. And, and, and where are you talking about exactly? In, in Moscow. Ah. So the allegations that uh, Russians and Soviets before them monitor foreigners, particularly high-profile foreigners, uh, they do that quite actively in Moscow and still do. Sure. Back to the point about the tensions that we, we have at the moment, and which, John, you said are likely to abate between the president-elect and the intel community. Uh, nevertheless, is it is it possible that if, if that kind of uh, skepticism uh, from the president-elect toward the intelligence community, could that hurt, in the long run, hurt national security? Well, I think it does pose a, a serious concern. Any leader wants to be as well informed as he or she can be. Uh, the U.S. intelligence community is just one stream of information to policymakers that's out there. A lot of policymakers come into office with their own contacts around the globe, with uh, reading good open source material. And in some respects, uh, some senior leaders have told me, well, yeah, I read what the intelligence community provides to me, but 
I can read The Economist and get stuff that's written in better English, which may be true. It's just another stream of information, and in some respects, it can be warning information that you're not going to get from open source. Uh, it's going to come from certain technical capabilities or human uh, collection capabilities that you're just not going to get anywhere else. A lot of it is more tactical and operational, but any leader who's going to make decisions in an environment where there's a lot going on is going to want that information. For more, for making more strategic decisions, bigger, uh, longer-term issues, the intelligence community, both classified and its assessment of unclassified material, is important. But there are also other sources of information, RAND, other research institutions, academics, uh, journalists, uh, business people are all coming back from engagements around the globe with important insights, and that any leader will want to avail him or herself of that full range of information. Bill, John John touched on that there could have been some motives. Obviously, there are some motives that would be uh, ordinary that the Russians might have to be uh, involving, uh, involving themselves in the way that has been alleged. Uh, how would you put Russia's motives in context? Uh, I mean, we've read about how they may have used active measures regarding Brexit and other European matters. Uh, help, help us with that. Uh, yes, so active measures, which is a combination of propaganda, subversion, funding of foreign political groups, uh, goes way back in Soviet and the Tsarist period, as well as in the current Russian period. They are a relatively low-cost measure to achieve political effects uh, that cannot be achieved so easily in more open um, ways through diplomacy, for example. So just to cite a couple of examples, you know, the, the Brexit vote, the U.S. election in November, and the Italian constitutional referendum in December. In all three of those cases, the Kremlin may believe that its political influence operations, its active measures, helped tip the balance in the voting, even if they weren't decisive. Moscow interfered uh, differently in each case. Before the Brexit vote, the Kremlin unleashed its propaganda organs, uh, RT, television, and Sputnik news service, to spread misleading information and trolls to fill social media with falsehoods. Mm -hmm. In the U.S. election, the Kremlin relied on cyber espionage and WikiLeaks. In Italy, the anti-establishment five-star movement employed the Internet and social media itself to spread pro-Kremlin views, conspiracy theories, and uh, fake news. All in all, uh, the Kremlin thinks that these are fairly effective operations. And going forward, you know, despite the political backlash in Washington to Russian interference in our elections, Kremlin's been doing this a lot more for a longer period of time uh, in Europe. The Kremlin probably thinks at this point that it may see advantages in using political influence operations to continue to influence uh, politics in the United States, for example, perhaps to undermine Trump's opponents in Congress. The Kremlin will attach priority to backing friendly candidates in elections this year in France, Germany, and the Netherlands. And weakening Chancellor Merkel will be a top goal of Kremlin political influence operations. What about uh, the U.S. countering or the Europeans countering this? Uh, is it happening and we don't know about it, or should it be happening more than you suspect it is? At first, 
uh, some of the governments, and certainly here in Washington, uh, people were shocked by by the methods. Um, a RAND study of using propaganda, a detailed RAND study relying on sociology and psychology literature, uh, discovered that the most effective way to, to counter uh, propaganda is to expose the methods used in propaganda and inform the public about the methods used and why adversarial states, for example, might employ them, rather than just responding to each specific propaganda charge. Ronald Reagan did this. One week after he was inaugurated, he said that the Soviets would lie uh, to further their purposes. So he was basically talking about the methods that, that were used. And of course, he was correct uh, at that time. Probably Western governments are now going to give more attention to the methods that are being used uh, in um, political influence operations. Those operations are generally more active in Europe than here. RT television, for example, has almost no resonance in the United States, but it's a significant factor in Europe. I've got a few emailed questions. We have one person on the line ready to ask a question. One of the email questions is close to what you're talking about. Let's just do a follow-up on that. It's from uh, one of our listeners, Michael. Harvard historian Niall Ferguson and others have raised the specter of a strategic alliance between Russia and China that would be pointed toward countering and overcoming American influence in key regions of the world. How realistic is that possibility? What can and should the U.S. do to reduce the likelihood of an adversarial Russia-China alliance? There clearly are opportunities for Russia and China to cooperate, and they've they've been trying to do this in the last couple of years, Uh, particularly since, as John mentioned, when the Russians went into Ukraine, and the West, both Europe and America together, imposed major sanctions, especially economic sanctions on finance, energy, and defense industry activities, uh, the Russians started looking more actively to China. President Vladimir Putin flew to Beijing, met with Xi Jinping. They talked about a Siberian gas deal and some other things. But the Russians have been a bit disappointed because the Chinese apparently... Have drive, are driving harder bargains because they see the Russians more isolated from Western markets. And this has disappointed uh, Russians. That said, uh, there will still be areas for uh, common uh, grounds, if you will. In some sense, what Russia wants in the countries around it, the former Soviet countries, is a sphere of influence. It wants it recognized by the outside world so that Russia can have free reign. What China wants in the East and South China Seas is essentially a sphere of influence with recognizing China's uh, uh, power there, even though an international court of justice opinion uh, overturned China's uh, legal policy. Uh, so in those, t- th- those areas, uh, the West is going to have to be alert. Let's uh, take a question from Alan. Several-part question. Number one, why does it appear that everything Russia does in the area of intelligence, counterintelligence, is bad, and that everything we do, which we obviously do, is good. And does this get to the issue that we have a general failure to understand what the Russians are up to, what their goals and objectives and philosophies are, and also how Putin uh, views this? Well, uh from our own perspective, when the, the Russians are conducting intelligence operations against the interests of the United States, that is bad. Uh, and uh, when um, 
we are conducting uh, intelligence, either collection or operations, to further U.S. foreign policy at some level, that, that should be good. Uh, I recognize there might be different interpretations of that depending upon where you sit and stand. Uh, there may be areas where we can collaborate, and indeed there has been close intelligence collaboration between the United States and Russia over the last um, two decades in areas of counterproliferation, some in counterterrorism, uh, some in uh, countering nuclear smuggling, uh, the security of nuclear material uh, in Russia. So there have been a number of areas where our intelligence services have collaborated. Indeed, there's been a close collaboration between the FSB and the U.S. FBI on uh, criminal matters. So um, it's not always, we're not always at loggerheads, uh, either at the level of foreign policy or in indeed the the gray area of uh, intelligence. Uh, with regard to whether we failed to understand Russian goals, <clears throat> a lot of Russian goals uh, are apparent. For example, in 2008, there was a, a summit at which uh, President Putin spoke with President George Bush and said, George, you don't understand. Ukraine is not a real country. Well, that gives some insight about their later policy. Then later, a couple of weeks after the Russian invasion of Georgia in August 2008, um, President Medvedev said that Russia should have privileged interests in its neighboring countries, a sphere of influence. Russia has uh, complained that the West has not allowed the security order to change after the Cold War in Europe, but what Russia really wants is a sphere of influence, the ability to use coercion against its neighbors in order to exercise some control over them, and the West has, has refused to, to do that. So many of these things are not totally opaque. Uh, it just requires you know, paying attention sometimes to what Russian leaders say. I think Bill makes a good point. You know, it is a challenge to understand the motivations and worldview of foreign leaders, whoever they are, including allies. It's not just competitors and adversaries, and I think that is an ongoing challenge. We're a large country surrounded by oceans. We've got a big mix of people from around the globe, but we often have an American-centric view, and one of the challenges of intelligence, which is the importance of intelligence, is it's people out uh, trying to understand what are the motivations and worldview of foreign countries. The same is true of our diplomats, who are engaging with all levels of civil society in foreign countries. Uh, but it is a challenge. Different la languages don't always translate. Cultural experience is different. Historical uh, experience is different. The nature of the economies are different. Uh, while we may want to have all other countries with liberal democracies and an open uh, and competitive uh, free marketplace, not everybody in the globe sees that as the ideal. And so we have to figure out with those countries that don't see that as the ideal or see some mix or some other worldview, how can we still uh, interact, collaborate, further our interests with them, even though they have a different point of view, a different worldview? Uh, we have a, an email question from Robert about the uh, uh, relationship between Russia, uh, Trump, and our allies, and particularly uh, regarding oil and how half of Russia's budget is from oil, and uh, oil, production, uh, oil production is uh, around 11 billion barrels a day. 
Uh, you want to comment on that, uh, Bill? The Russian economy has not diversified in recent years. Even during the 2000s, when oil prices were rising and high, uh, the Russian leadership uh, at times would say, well, we need to diversify the economy so we're not so dependent on oil and gas revenue. Uh, but instead of making economic reforms that would help them do that, uh, enable the economy to move more toward comparative advantages in, in other areas, uh, actually the economy went backward in some respects. So oil and gas is still emphasized. Russian oil production right now is, is at a peak. But a couple of months ago, the Federal Anti-Monopoly Service in Russia announced that in 2005, 35% of the economy was state-controlled. In 2015, just 10 years later, 70% of the economy is state-controlled. So this means that, uh, and this is something consistent with what people have observed, that there are too many economic opportunities that are just not available to the private sector or, or to, to foreign investors. As a result, the Russian economy was stagnating even before the oil price drop in 2014, even before the economic sanctions as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the Russian economy had already stagnated. And since then, of course, the economy has had greater difficulties. So Russia can change, but they need to liberalize the economy. They need to sell off state-controlled assets, open up more opportunities. Russia produces an enormous number of software engineers, but it's not... Uh, it does not have a favorable climate for starting up IT businesses. So the IT companies, IT entrepreneurs will go to Silicon Valley or Latvia or Israel to start their companies and then outsource the coding to software engineers in Russia. This is a basic economic policy problem for Russia. Russia is still welcoming investment, I mean, despite yes. the, the, the tensions between U.S. and... That's correct. Uh, uh, Russia is welcoming investment. Uh, the problem for Russia is that uh, political and commercial risks are, are both high. You know, from a standpoint of an international investor, there are sanctions because of the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, there is economic stagnation in general. Uh, and then there's a lot of political risk. And it comes uh, in great part because Russia's policy, overall foreign policy, has become more anti-Western and especially anti-U.S., since those demonstrations in 2011-2012. So from an investor perspective, uh, there are a lot, of, a lot of risks that need to be taken into account. Russia is competing with other countries around the world for foreign investment, and right now it's less competitive than it should be. Bill, you just mentioned sanctions. Uh, uh, the sanctions uh, are, are still permitting investment both ways between the U.S. and Russia. Uh, but what about the Exxon Mobil field in the uh, Kara Sea? Is that, so has the, that been yes, affected uh, by this? Yes, uh, very much. So Exxon has two huge projects in Russia. One is a producing activity in Sakhalin Island called Sakhalin 1, which is probably the most efficient, best-run um, oil operation anywhere in Russia. The other is an exploration project in the Kara Sea above Siberia, uh, and that was shut down as a result of economic sanctions imposed by the U.S. after Russia invaded eastern Ukraine. Problem with, for Russia now is that the mood in the U.S. Congress is getting tougher with regard to sanctions, 
And the Europeans have continued to re-up sanctions. The Russians thought the Europeans wouldn't do that, they'd fall off, but they haven't done that so far. So right now, the Russians are running into a kind of a pincer movement, if you will, in the U.S. Congress. The neocons, Senator McCain, Grandma's, but also the liberal internationalists like Ben Cardin, they have combined to introduce a new bill called Countering Russia um, uh, Hostilities Act of 2017, which would legally codify the Obama sanctions related to Ukraine, uh, but in addition would put um, sanctions on U.S. investment in state-owned assets in Russia and also the sale of sovereign uh, debt. Uh, once these sanctions come into law, as we've seen from the Jackson-Vanik Amendment in the 1970s, it's hard to get them undone. So this is something that most people have advised against before. Uh, but right now, because you have neocons and liberal internationalists who are both tougher on Russia uh, in the Congress than they see President Trump, there's some lack of trust that Trump will be firm enough on sanctions, and so therefore Congress is proposing to codify them and expand them. Very good. I see Alan is on the line again. Uh, Alan, did you want to weigh in? It reminded me, uh, we, you haven't mentioned what you think about the choice of Tillerson as Secretary of State, uh, regardless of my feelings for him, which I think are positive. How do you think uh, his, what, what do you think his impact will be on U.S.-Russian relationships, and will that be good or bad? This is Bill. Uh, in general, uh, I think his nomination, I think also possibly about his nomination, he has run a worldwide enterprise with a lot of people based in austere parts of the world. Well, that's the State Department. Uh, he has a lot of experience dealing with foreign leaders, not only Putin, but others, knows how to operate in that milieu, does not have public policy experience. And some of the public policy log rolling that goes on here in Washington is sometimes uh, a little, seems a little unseemly to people who haven't been through it before. Uh, but he seems overall to be a, a very well-prepared person, comes with high recommendations from James Baker, um, from Robert Gates, uh, Condi Rice. Uh, he did pretty well in the hearing. Uh, he did not fall for Senator Rubio's baiting uh, questions. Uh, so I think people are generally fairly positive uh, about him. He will not be important just in the Russia context, of course. He will have worldwide uh, perspectives. He's already said that uh, he would be in favor of arming Ukraine, for example, which is something that Obama has been unwilling to do. I no sign that Trump supports a position like that. He said he's in favor of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Well, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, at the, our colleagues at the Peterson Institute of Economics, International Institute of Economics, they've calculated that the economic benefit to America of the Trans-Pacific Partnership is roughly a trillion dollars over a decade. Well, that's the cost of the Iraq war to us. So this is real money. There is some hope in the foreign policy community that some of these things can be, can be turned around, uh, such as TPP or, or something like TPP, because it's an important U.S. economic interest. And I imagine Tillerson will be playing heavily in that. I think you, I think you can John. make a, a similar comment about the other national security nominees, that they've proven to be... Um, much more uh, internationalist um, uh, and um, willing to engage with the Congress and have real-world experience with international affairs that I think will benefit the country 
and I hope uh, benefit the president-elect if indeed he avails himself of their insights and experience. Uh, we have uh, uh, Dr. Sipamon Khan on the, on the line. Yes, um, I would like for you to possibly elaborate a little more on the um, uh, 2011-2012 demonstrations in Russia and how that impacted uh, U.S.-Russia relations. Well, the primary impact of those demonstrations was to spook the Kremlin. And let me draw spook the Kremlin. Spook the Kremlin. Right. So let me yeah. draw a comparison. Uh, those demonstrations involved several tens of thousands of people. They persisted over several months, sometimes in a desultory way. In two late 2013, on the Maidan in Ukraine, large numbers of people came out. They stayed out through the coldest part of the winter in Kiev, and they even stayed in the streets when Yanukovych sent these Berkut uh, uh, people on the roof uh, around the Maidan Square and shot about 100 of the people on the Maidan. The people still stayed out. So there was, there was a difference in civil society, if you will. It's a lot stronger in Ukraine than, than it is in Russia. Uh, but yet, this was the, in Russia, that was the largest demonstration since the collapse of the Soviet Union itself. So Kremlin was seems to be worried and started a clampdown. Now they've clamped down on many aspects of civil society. At this point, private business is the strongest element of civil society in Russia. A lot of NGOs and others have have been repressed. The media has been taken over. There are very few independent media outlets. Thanks very much. You know, as, as long as we're discussing uh, cabinet member nominees and uh, confirmation hearings, John, you could touch on the implications for intelligence issues, especially given the fact that some of these nominees have different views than the president-elect. Well, it was interesting to watch the hearing for uh, Pompeo, Congressman Pompeo, who's due to be the director of CIA. He said, very clearly that when he was a partisan in the Congress, he took certain policy views. But now that he is the nominee to run the Central Intelligence Agency, where the task really is to provide national security leaders or national leaders with uh, information to give them decision advantage as they um, articulate policy, American policy around the globe, that he would be taking a very different view. And he, he outlined a number of things that are um, different than what the president-elect has articulated on the campaign trail, such as on um, enhanced interrogation or torture. Pompeo seemed to say that he would n not embrace that. Mm -hmm. uh, the agreement with Iran, he's, he indicated that um, it was important to use the verification provisions of that agreement to catch the Iranians uh, at cheating or to discourage them from doing so. Uh, that uh, the ongoing... Um, relations with uh, Russia, he would um, want to make sure that we continue to try and understand them in all means possible. So uh, he seemed to articulate a different view than was common on the campaign trail. It's my hope that over time, the views of these nominees, Tillerson and, uh, and General uh, Mattis and, uh, and Congressman Pompeo, will, will become the framework for American policy around the globe. Let me comment um, on a couple of historical parallels to the current situation. Uh, in the spirit of Doris Kearns Goodwin's uh, book, Team of Rivals, we've had this in Washington. In the Carter administration, 
Zbigniew Brzezinski, as national security advisor, was much tougher on Russia than Cyrus Vance, uh, the first uh, secretary of state in the Carter administration. Uh, in the Reagan administration, Secretary of State George Shultz was more willing to negotiate with Russia after uh, Mikhail Gorbachev came to power and started making reforms, whereas Defense Secretary Caspar Weinberger was totally opposed to this. And in fact, Weinberger ended up resigning one month before Reagan signed the, the most important arms control treaty, uh, which eliminated uh, intermediate-range nuclear forces on, on both sides. So we're accustomed to teams of rival rivals here. Uh, in the Obama administration, we've seen state defense and CIA generally uh, supportive of the idea of arming Ukraine and establishing a safe zone in northern Syria, but the president in both cases seemed to oppose that. What we have not seen here in Washington is a team arrival situation in which state defense and, and CIA nominees have been so sharply at variance in their public positions uh, with the incoming president. We had a lot of fur fly here in Washington. At the beginning of the Carter administration, when Carter wanted to pull ground troops out of South Korea, which was a bad idea, and uh, he eventually abandoned it. At the beginning of the Reagan administration, we had a lot of fur flying when Reagan wanted to build up strategic nuclear forces in the United States and take a tougher posture toward Soviet Union, calling it an evil empire in, in one speech. Uh, but we have not seen this. This is a difference in degree that almost is, is qualitative. John, going back to an earlier point of yours, was that you couldn't comment on the veracity of, of these allegations that are swirling now. But when do you think that they might be proven or disproven? I mean, how long is that kind of thing likely to take? Or can it even be done? Well, I think, Jeff, if you put aside the particular allegations in this dossier, we should assume that the Russians have collected information on uh, President-elect Trump that they will want to use to their advantage over the next four years, and that they may have indeed acquired information that they just haven't used. They used uh, information that they acquired on the, uh, the Democratic... Democrats, but not know, the Republicans yet. They have not done that. Yeah, but, they have it. Uh, but we should assume they have. Whether they have it or not, we should assume they have and that they will use it at the time of their um, chosen moment of strategic uh, advantage. I mean, they're not really interested in, at some level, who wins the American presidential election. They're interested in whoever wins, how they can shape the situation to the benefit of their country. And so I um, think it's a good bet to assume that they have information on President-elect Trump that they may use to their advantage at some point in the future, as I'm sure they do on a variety of senior leaders in the United States, business people, members of Congress, uh, and others. Uh, now, some of the specific allegations, you know, you get into a very gray world. It's very hard to verify that. Uh, you know, people may be paid to not say anything. And it could be fake news, as indeed mm -hmm. the President-elect uh, uh, has said. I mean, we're in a a new era with a 24-hour news cycle from cable television and a 24-hour minute-by-minute, second-by-second social media environment in which people can create news and then the challenge of trying to figure out what is real and what is not uh, is up to every viewer. Ed has a question by email, which is sort of the flip side to this, which is, does the U.S. have uh, compromise on 
Putin, particularly on his wealth, and if so, should the U.S. put pressure on Putin by publicizing his wealth? Well, uh, you may recall the Panama Papers were released uh, and provided a fair amount of information on so-called princelings in China uh, who were uh, children of some of the senior Chinese leaders, which was embarrassing for many of them. Um, in this period of transition, you want to think very carefully about how you use information because you never know quite how it will bounce, how it will go. And I think working towards our interests uh, and finding common cause is generally should be a first choice as opposed to the indirect and uncertain use of a kind of leverage uh, of an unsavory nature. Along these lines, what, what about the relationship between Russia, uh, the Russians and WikiLeaks, in either one of you? Well, I think that's uh, whether uh, Julio Assange and WikiLeaks are witting of the information coming from the Russians or unwitting, the results are the same. Uh, and they might argue, as Assange has, that more transparency on a major power is good. Uh, the missing part of the equation is where's the transparency on the Russian side? Where's the transparency on the Chinese side? Where's the transparency on what's going on in Iran or Hungary or any number of other uh, places? It really seems to have been focused on the United States, focused on United States policy abroad in many different countries. And so the question we have to ask is, is this just because we're a more free and open society and our information is easier to get, or is it being provided to them by a competing power? Well, that makes sense. I think we're going to wrap. Unless last thought from you, Bill? One of the interesting things from the, the press conference Wednesday, the president-elect's press conference, was this dossier, of course, had been publicized, and no one has any idea whether any of it is accurate or not. But Trump's unusually positive comments about Russia and, and Putin haven't been well grounded in strategic analysis. When President Reagan came to power and wanted a tougher policy, he relied on analysis, uh, especially from the Committee on Present Danger, which involved a lot of prominent conservatives, serious, serious analysis. But Trump's years seem to come out of the blue if you will. No one's really sure. So no one in the Congress is standing up to defend Trump's views. Neither on the no prominent figures standing up to defend Trump's views. So in the press conference, we had Trump, who clearly wants to keep a positive approach toward Russia, but then in responding to the dossier, which may not be true at all, he overreacted and lambasted the intelligence community in a way that where he even drew a comparison with, with Nazi Germany and implied the intelligence community is operating. So the dossier has already done damage, if you will, because of an overreaction to it. Mm -hmm. um, that, was, that was an unfortunate episode. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, John. It's now 1246 in Washington, so we're at the end of our time. Uh, thanks to our Policy Circle members and friends for joining us on this call. If you'd like more information regarding upcoming Policy Circle events or to listen to a podcast, please visit RAND.org. You can also contact us directly at policy underscore circle at RAND.org. This concludes our call. Thanks for participating, and have a great day. 
This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.